So it really is an honor to have you on, uh, Professor Gaffield. So I, I appreciate you coming here. Yeah, two years in the making. See, I never gave up. You know, I was like, I got to have her because I keep running into you in the damn footnotes, you know. And this <laughs> the footnotes are the best place to look in most books. It is, isn't it? Right. And I think like one of the one of the greatest compliments about a book is like you recommend the book and you're like, and don't skip the footnotes. Before we get into Haitian yeah. connections and the Atlantic world recognition after revolution, you're writing a book, a biography of Dessalines. I am. It's true. Oh my God. You know, I, I, uh, I, 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 you know, <laughs> Dessalines, <laughs> where are you in this process? Are you almost done? That is, that is the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> am I almost done? At this point, um, it is out for its second round of peer review. Those reports are coming back any day now, fingers crossed. And um, so we'll see what the reviewers say, um, how much more editing needs to be done. Kind of publication date is going to depend on on that, that work, but it'll be either late 2024, early 2025. There's a full version of it and it's, you know, uh, a decent full version of it, um, but there's still a little bit of work to do. Uh, lengthwise, what are we looking at here? Lengthwise. Uh, 300, under 300, 400 pages. Oh, 100. I don't know how it translates into pages. 150,000, 100,000 words. Oh, um, okay. Okay. Which I think should be longer than Haitian Connections but, uh, by about half. Like, a, okay. yeah, one and a half times that. So it it's it's not a short biography. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Why Haiti? Initially, a case of I had a really great professor in undergrad, Melanie Newton, at the University of Toronto, and I was sitting in her class, and it was it was the first time I had learned. It was a kind of general intro to Caribbean history class, and it was the first time I was learning a lot uh, about a lot of this material. That semester, I very distinctly remember, like, at the start of the class, I was one of the students who sat at the back of the room. And by the end of the class, this was um, a full-year class. It was two semesters. They do this in, in Canada a fair amount. And by the end of the class, I was sitting in the front row of the class. <laughs> I think that kind of physical progression just matched my interest in the material. And it was in this class that I first read an excerpt from The Black Jacobins. It was basically, I was reading about this and I was, I was just kind of blown away. I had never learned anything about the Haitian Revolution before this class. The, the story of it, kind of broader impact, it really blew my mind. And that was also the same year, this was in 2004. And so there was a lot of talk about Haiti in the news and Professor Newton ensured that we kind of connected what we were learning about in the class to contemporary events through discussions in the class, but also outside the class with community members, discussions about Haitian sovereignty, and kind of connecting history to the present. And this was the first time I'd really seen that done. And I, I kind of never looked back. So it was just, it was a really good class in undergrad, a really great professor at a very specific um, moment in time. And the way the way Professor Newton taught the class, it was kind of heavily dependent on essay writing that I that it turns out I actually love, um, and I didn't really know that until uh, that class. And so it was just the the and then of course after that I took every single class 
that Professor Newton offered. Um, and I just tagged along after her and <laughs> uh, followed her around. And it's it's been nice kind of bumping into her at various academic events now. She very much remembers me being in the class. And I, you know, I'm like, basically you changed my life. <laughs> That's so, awesome. It was such a great experience, yeah. I taught this book on Clubhouse to 300 people that attended over an eight-week period. That's so eight great. Weeks. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank yeah. You. And everyone, Julia, were like blown away. Some of them might have even contacted you already. Yeah. I, kinds of feedback are just so great. And I'm really grateful for that. That feedback that I got from that audience who at 7 p.m. on Wednesday night showed up. Wow. Right? We were all taught that Haiti was completely isolated. Mm-hmm. So, or is it more nuanced than that? I think it's a little more nuanced. Um, isolated is not um, the word I would use um, because that suggests a kind of complete cutoff. And what I really wanted to ep- emphasize in the book is that it was, in fact, much more complicated. And there were ways that people of various kinds engaged with Haiti um, for various reasons. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that diplomatic non-recognition wasn't like important and significant. I think the emphasis on the isolation aspect kind of tells a narrative about Haiti that, you know, they were cut off from the world. Um, kind of, mm-hmm. you know, it's a very parochial history that it's very local. Um, and, it, and it really undermines a lot of the work that various heads of state did to try to change the the diplomatic non-recognition, right? So there was a lot of activism on the part of um, various Haitian diplomats and heads of state to integrate into the community of nations and empires in the Atlantic world. And so I I saw like a number of problems with the framing Um, and it erased... First, it erased uh, Dessalines as any kind of, you know, diplomatic leader. It kind of took away him as a as an actor who was trying to um, negotiate with foreign governments to establish Haitian sovereignty. And then I think it creates this kind of narrative that after the revolution, Haiti was isolated, and then basically it was bad news from there on. It also puts d- diplomatic recognition on this pedestal that um, I don't think it deserves to be on because even after they allegedly got diplomatic recognition, it didn't really mean that they were accepted, that Haiti was accepted as an equal nation state among the family of nations, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's not this kind of before recognition and after recognition break. It's much more of a spectrum. I think in the academic community, some of the problem was that a lot of the research that was being done, you know, since in the last uh, two to three decades, a lot of that research was really focused on the revolution. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they declare independence and that's the end of the story. Kind of my research program was like, okay, you win, you win the revolution and, and like, then what? How do you sustain this country, right? Like, how did they maintain independence? Which I think if you think about, the fact that Haiti did remain independent in it, in and of itself is kind of mind-blowing. And so I really wanted to figure that out. The ability to sustain independence, to me, didn't really fit with this isolation thesis. This, and the isolation thesis 
a PhD from York University where I got my master's degree. His name's um, Thor Burnham, um, is the one who called it the isolation thesis. Um, and his mm-hmm. dissertation looked at marriage records in the 19th century. Um, I, I, to my knowledge, he has not published it as a book, but it's an excellent dissertation. Um, and so he called it this isolation thesis. And he had kind of started saying like, no, all these marriage, marriage records show that in fact, Haiti was not isolated. And he approached it from that um, perspective, but he was looking a little more at the mid 19th century. As I was kind of starting this research program, there was not a lot of attention to the, to the independence period. That was starting to change, though, um, and, and Marlena Doubt has um, obviously been um, one of the people who has done a ton of research on this as well, um, and she was a, f- a few years ahead of me in terms of her career. So um, kind of, you know, we started having these conversations when I was still a grad student. I met her. Um, I met her for the first time at the Haitian Studies Association Conference um, in Montreuil, Haiti, and she just kind of blew my mind. But so there, there were there wasn't no, it wasn't like nobody was having these conversations, but it wasn't the the kind of accepted narrative about what happened after independence. And so I think there's like a growing group that is kind of questioning what that means, and and I and I certainly don't want to kind of emphasize complexity and ambiguity, but it's a much more complicated story. Um, and for various reasons, I think acknowledging that complexity is is really important, both for um, Haitian history, but also for the kind of broader age of revolutions history in terms of how people responded to Haitian independence. You all are sort of pretty much looking at the same materials, right? When you go to the archives and how is it, how is it that these kind of gaps happen how much of that is institutional that's causing this sort of gap if you will versus how much of it is sort of a natural progression of disconnected people doing research on whatever interests them yeah i i mean i think it in a lot of ways it depends on the on the circumstance so i'll just um speak to to kind of my own uh experiences one of when i when i started saying that i wanted to study or wanted to research 1804 and after, one of the things that I heard kind of most frequently was like, eh, you're not really going to be able to write a dissertation about that because there aren't any sources, right? Um, Happily, my advisor at Duke, Laurent Dubois, disagreed with that conclusion and was like, there are absolutely enough sources to do this project. Go ahead. But, you know, related to kind of relating source base to the the kind of the conclusion that Haiti was isolated, um, I think is very much. So if you if you start with the fact that Haiti was isolated, then your source base is determined by kind of that relationship, mm-hmm. and and then and then the next step to that was well, there's no sources in Haiti, um, which is not entirely true. Yes, um, archives in Haiti um, for various reasons don't have robust collections. Some of that is legacies of colonialism, you know, underfunded institutions, various reasons. If you start with the idea that Haiti was not isolated, then that opens up a kind of much larger geography of, of kind of archival possibilities. The, the first kind of inkling that I got of this, and, and one of the reasons why I was like, this isolation thing, I don't know. There's a couple pages in, I think it's Thomas Madieu, um, it could be it could be Beaupre, but I think it's Thomas Madieu where he talks about a diplomat from Jamaica 
coming to Haiti to negotiate a trade agreement. And I was like, what? <laughs> and, and there's a couple pages on it, right? So, you know, this opens the door. That's, that's not isolation to me. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that's, that's diplomatic engagement, international diplomacy. So, um, I went to, um, visit the archives in Jamaica, particularly, um, the National Library of Jamaica, where they have the records, the letters from the governor of Jamaica at the time when Haiti became independent. And, um, this is one of these these kind of moments in the archive that, uh, you know, like a lot of people think that the archives are like really cool and exciting. And they are to some degree, but they're also very like institutional and bureaucratic and, you know, not all that exciting. But this was one of those moments where, um, you know, the the kind of you're picturing yourself and sitting at a table and they bring out these like three enormous wooden boxes that look like, you know, somebody in a Hollywood film would describe the archives. Like they're kind of amazing. And in these boxes are, um, you know, like 10 inch high stacks of folded up letters that are tied with string. Um, and so there's just all this material that's like original letters from Dessaline writing to the governor of Jamaica and, you know, correspondence back and forth. And so to me, that was like, there, there was clearly engagement with the world outside of Haiti. And so we just need to start looking. And so my strategy kind of became like, what other archive can I go to? You know, um, what other, does it make, is there kind of a, a, like a very sliver, a small sliver of evidence to suggest that something could be in this archive? And I would go and I would inevitably find things um, either about Haiti or um, material from Haiti um, mm -hmm. that kind of then helped me put together this broader picture of Haiti in the Atlantic world. Um, rather than Haiti is isolated. What time period are you covering in this book? I start, I start a little bit before um, the Declaration of Independence because Dessalines kind of began, began planning for independence in like June of 1803. And so he's kind of setting the, the groundwork for the next months in terms of preparing for independence. So I, I start with, with that as the beginning of independence, because I really see that as the push for the independence movement. Around 1810-ish, depending on uh, the, the moment. And I see this, you know, it's a very, it's kind of a, a bigger geographical perspective and a smaller chronological perspective. Okay. And the reason why I, I chose to do that um, was because I wanted to show these kind of various strands of non-isolation. I kind of figured that after about 1810, the policies that got put in place, um, both within Haiti and by foreign governments, kind of stayed pretty constant until the 1825 ordinance. To me, it made sense to kind of dig deep on, on those years the first decade, almost decade after uh, around independence. And then what gets figured out there kind of stays in place. You know, 1825 and on um, is a bit of a different story. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, uh, I think there's also during that time period, there's also the 
a lot more possibility in terms of in terms of outcomes and the, mm-hmm. the expectation, maybe not expectation, but the possibility of becoming an accepted and recognized nation among the family of nations of Europe and America. You know, the the trade treaty that I talk about that Dessalines and the governor of Jamaica, George Nugent, were trying to negotiate was an example of how a European empire was trying to kind of put Haiti in a kind of uh, an unequal status mm-hmm. among the mm-hmm. among the family of nations. And Dessalines' response is like, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. We, we did not declare independence to now kind of lose our sovereignty through this treaty with you guys. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the 18, by 1825, um, it's kind of become clear that there's not a whole lot of other options. And this is one of the things that I find uh, kind of very telling about the Haitian case is that in the Haitian case, the only case in the Americas in which the former colonizer was the first to extend official diplomatic recognition to the former colony, right? So in in the case of the U.S., France recognizes the U.S. before the British do. In the case of um, Latin America, the British recognize um, independent countries before um, the Portuguese or Spanish do, right? So everybody waits and kind of respects hate or France's uh, ongoing claims to uh, dominion over Haiti, and mm-hmm. that puts them in a position where this kind of compromise agreement with France is the is the becomes the only option. Whereas mm-hmm. earlier, there's it's not clear that that's that that's going to be the case. Because you did a, a compare and contrast between like the United States after the U.S. declared its independence, they they didn't necessarily automatically get a free pass on the international stage. You had to wait, right? In the right. same way that Haiti did. Can you talk about that? I forgot what term you used. Is it the admiralty laws or what was it that you called it? Uh, there's either the law of nations or um, the comparison with the U.S. case is treaty worthiness. Yes, um, treaty worthiness. Yes, that's the right. term. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, in a lot of ways, the Haitian case is similar to how um, the U.S. declared independence. In a lot of other ways, it is very different. And I think what's what's interesting in the time period that this book covers is that it's not clear that it's going to be that different um, immediately. When the U.S. declared their independence, um, as the historian Elijah Gold has, has written about, recognition was not a given equality among nations was not a given. And so the U.S. had to embark on a project to secure what Elijah Gold calls treaty worthiness. And so Haitian leaders also um, tried to secure treaty worthiness, right? And this is the, the, the idea that a country could be, could be expected to reliably follow international treaties and to follow the agreed upon rules of uh, the law of nations. Agreed upon might not be the right word. To follow the uh, customary practices of the law of nations. And so securing an international treaty was a really important way for a country to secure recognition, right? Signing a treaty would have amounted to diplomatic recognition. There's a lot of other things that kind of help diplomatic recognition, and to, like sending a consul um, is one way, addressing the leader of the country by their title 
um, calling the country by its name. These are all, uh, this is all kind of evidence of, of statehood. So there's, you know, a kind of an effort on the part, um, beginning with Dessalines, to secure treaty worthiness. He doesn't use this terminology, but this is why his negotiations with the governor of Jamaica were so important. To, to a degree, though, he wanted a treaty, but it had to be a treaty that reinforced Haitian statehood, Haitian independence, Haitian sovereignty. It, it couldn't be a treaty that established Haiti as an unequal nation. And so kind of thinking about the process of Haitian independence in the context of U.S. independence is, is really enlightening because they're, they're trying to do similar things, but of course, they're very different um, histories, the very different revolution, and the kind of deep racism of the international community means that the outcome is, is drastically different. The Napoleonic Wars are absolutely central to the, the story of Haiti's independence. Kind of situating Dessalines dip diplomatic negotiations with the governor of Jamaica um, within that bigger context of the British being at war with the French um, is essential, right? Because they, they are both kind of neighbors, potential allies, as well as being a threat to the economic system of, mm -hmm. of the British colonies. And there, there was kind of a, a much longer history of negotiations and treaties. What Dessalines was doing is building on an agreement between uh, Louverture and Jamaica and Maitland, sorry, a, a general from, from Jamaica, but also kind of taking into consideration that we are no longer a French colony, right? So mm -hmm. in terms of re reactions, right? Like it's this, this isn't a, an event or uh, a series of events that's happening in a vacuum. You know, they could kind of see eye to eye in terms of their deep hatred for France. And there's some strategy, right? Dessalines was, was willing to at least publicly overlook the fact that um, slavery was still legal in Jamaica at this time. He was willing to say like, you know, oh, your, your system wasn't as bad as what the French did. At least, you know, he was doing this publicly. He was doing this in his correspondence with the British um, so that he could kind of foster these, these relationships and possible alliances. Um, so there's a practical nature to it. You know, we can't, sadly, he has, hasn't left much evidence in terms of how these kind of public proclamations either matched or didn't match uh, his own personal perspectives. But um, if you're thinking about him as a head of state, right? This is, this is strategy. This is how you sustain your country's independence. Can you talk about the, the part where I think it was the British official was concerned that, uh, that he was just basically on a wall path to kill all white people. So if there was a treaty with Haiti, I think it was the, the British official that, uh, can he guarantee that the British citizens coming to Haiti will be protected. And he said something to the effect of, no, it's the French that I don't hate all white people. I just hate the French. And I mean, I think this ties into the the text of the Declaration of Independence, right? He says eternal hatred to France. And he's mm -hmm. very specific about his unwillingness to forgive the French for what they've done. Again, I think that's strategic, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Saying, you know, the British, you have, you, we have no problems with you, 
um, mm -hmm. even though they have a, a parallel and similarly uh, horrific system of uh, slavery in their colonies. The evidence shows that uh, British people, people from the U.S., people from other colonies who were in Haiti after 1804 um, were in fact protected. Their lives were not at risk, um, and this was in, in the interest of kind of sustaining these other international relationships. What, what, is, uh, what is the role? Can you talk about the role of, of, of the merchant lobby? How influential were they in, in, in the negotiation process? The merchant lobby is absolutely essential. There were a lot of uh, foreign merchants who were unwilling to give up the economic opportunities simply because there had been a change of government. Many Americans, um, many British merchants um, did not care from whom they were buying um, the products as long as they could buy it and sell. What's really interesting is that because of uh, the insistence on diplomatic non-recognition, these merchants end up serving as kind of unofficial diplomats um, in Haiti. And they're corresponding and interacting with um, Haitian politicians and heads of state, and then reporting back to their governments about what's going on um, and pushing for recognition because it would help them, right? If, if they did sign a treaty, it might help get um, help them get better trade duties or whatever, you know, um, make it easier to trade with them, allow for protection for their for their ships. So um, they become they fill this void foreign diplomats in Haiti and end up being kind of semi representatives of their country. Although, um, of course, there's uh, continual denial that they are in fact diplomats and serving in any official capacity, even though that's kind of what they're doing. Where are the Haitian sisters in all of this? Hmm. Yeah, I think this this book admittedly did not do a great job in terms of thinking about the women involved in this story, right? Mm -hmm. It was very kind of heavy, heavily diplomatic history, um, some legal history in there, and a lot of that is just men doing things. I've tried as I'm writing the biography of Dessaline, to find as much as I can and include as much as I can about Marie-Claire Heureux, later uh, Madame Dessaline. Mm. She, I, I think she is such a fascinating figure because she is always there. Mm -hmm. And this includes in state ceremony. Um, this includes in, I think, kind of diplomatic events. This also includes on the battlefield. There's some uh, kind of amazing sources that mention that she is very nearby during the Battle of Cretapiro and that she kind of escapes with some of the other military wives. And there, she's just kind of always around. But it's also extremely frustrating because few accounts really describe her involvement and, and kind of what the contributions were in terms of these um, stories. So I'm trying to, to incorporate her, her narrative um, and mm -hmm. her contributions um, as I move forward in my research. But, you know, she's clearly an important figure in terms of, it, this is, uh, I think, one remarkable and, and perhaps unique uh, situation is that she is, like, universally loved. Like, both at the time and ever since then, like, everybody who has ever written about her has nothing but amazing things to say. Mm -hmm. Which, which for somebody, uh, for, for any character in the Haitian Revolution, I think is remarkable. 
but she, uh, I think in some ways gets used what people see at the time and since then as um, kind of Dessaline's negative characteristics. Um, so she ends up serving as like an opposite to, to Jean-Jacques Dessaline. You know, she is wonderful and thoughtful and um, compassionate and beautiful. And, you know, this is often contrasted um, with other descriptions of Dessaline that portray him as, you know, um, all of this is in quotations like barbaric and savage and uncivilized and ugly, you know, all these other things um, that um, people attribute uh, to Dessaline. So she's, she's uh, I think, a remarkable figure. And it's really interesting to see how um, she gets portrayed, particularly in the context of, you know, trying to condemn Dessaline too. So I think in, in certain circumstances, the the wives of Haitian leaders, uh, Haitian generals, would stand in for their husbands if they were unable to attend, um, mm -hmm. particularly kind of ceremonies, you know, these kind of big or festivities, dinners. Mm -hmm. and, um, mm -hmm. So she was probably the kind of host of this ball um, because Dessaline couldn't attend. Um, and, and there's an interesting moment where um, a few years earlier, um, Toussaint Louverture's wife, Suzanne, um, did the same thing for a celebration of um, Dessaline's uh, wedding. It wasn't his actual wedding. It was like a celebration of the wedding. But she stood in for her husband who um, had to leave early to be uh, somewhere else. Right. So they, they kind of um, there's a ceremonial role that they play. Mm -hmm. um, at these, these very public events. Um, and there's, there's dinners, um, that she hosts with Henri Christophe later. But I think, you know, what is, what is always, uh, fun to imagine, but that is hard to do as a historian, um, is to kind of go beyond, you know, what their ceremonial role, um, mm -hmm. was and think about the conversations that might've been happening during those events or before those events. Um, and that's really hard to access. Right. There's, there's a lot of different kinds of governments that that get established after 1804. And I think that, that the nuances between them, right, uh, as Chelsea Sieber has uh, insisted, the calling Haiti a republic in 1804 uh, mm -hmm. is is kind of wrong and bad for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. And the decision to establish first the state of Haiti with with Dessalines as governor general um, and then the empire of Haiti with Dessalines as emperor. And then uh, later under Pétion to establish a republic and Christophe goes back to the state of Haiti before establishing the kingdom. I think there's there's a lot of kind of details um, within these different forms of government in terms of what they're trying to do. I obviously connect a lot of this to securing international recognition, mm -hmm. right? Different forms of government that are legible to outsiders. I think there's a lot of continuity between them. It's not like uh, Pétion's Republic was um, based on kind of universal democratic participation, right? Mm -hmm. There's still kind of leadership class in each of these instances that are really making the decisions. Mm -hmm. And they're not necessarily working together, the three of them, right? They are often not very much right. not working together. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Although there's some point in there you did say that I don't forget who sent the question. He says, yes, we're having 
our own internal issues here, but we're all thinking of one Haiti, right? Was it the Salin who said that, or was it Christophe that that because there were some concerns by either the by the British officials about you know what about this civil war you guys are you know? Yeah, you you can't negotiate. I mean, you can. They tried to negotiate a treaty while your country is embroiled in a civil war because you know, from an outside perspective, and this is this was the response of the British, from an outside perspective, if we sign a treaty with you, how do we know that it's applicable to mm-hmm. other parts of the country? Mm-hmm. And so both, you know, it's, it's often described as, yeah, Christophe was president and then king of the North and, and Pétion was president and later Boyer was president of the South. But both, all of them were, were claiming to be the legitimate head of state of the entire country. Mm-hmm. So there kind of, there weren't, you know, there wasn't a recognition that this was like, oh, I'm president of the North. It was, I'm president of the entire country. And so they're, mm-hmm. they're very much at odds. Why is it so important to have international diplomacy after the independence? Right. Um, during the period that I'm studying, um, international diplomacy was essential because France was still claiming that Haiti was, or Saint-Domingue, as they continued to call it, was still their colony, right? And they mm-hmm. were threatening repeatedly that they were going to reinvade and reconquer the colony and kind of get it back. They were also like attacking ships going to and from Haiti, therefore undermining um, potential economic agreements. So securing recognition from other countries would would have protected Haitian independence, would have helped protect them from France, would have undermined France's claims to dominion over, over the territory. Mm-hmm. So creating these alliances, um, whether they be economic or military, political, kind of all of these forms um, would have helped, would have helped them kind of would have bolstered their claims to sovereignty, would have support, given evidence to their independence. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the informal ways that they kind of did secure these, these agreements and negotiations um, did help sustain their independence, right? As I uh, kind of go through with, uh, for example, the British Admiralty Courts, mm-hmm. um, you know, the fact that there was legal and regulated trade with Haiti um, had implications for um, Haitian sovereignty or kind of an understanding of Haitian sovereignty. These, it, it required, you know, like Haiti was, Haitians were saying they were independent. The French were saying absolutely not. And had they been able to secure outside recognition, right, then, then that doesn't put them in the spot that they ended up being in in 1825. They had no other options in 1825 because everybody else was like, nah, we're, we're going to wait for the French. We're not going to step on their toes, especially after the end of the Napoleonic Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, so had they been able to get those um, other, and I, I'm saying had they been able, had, had other nations been, been willing to agree um, also is, is to, to kind of recognize Haitian sovereignty, right? Like I'd, I'd like to put some of the emphasis, most of the emphasis on the unwillingness of other nations to recognize Haiti as an equal nation. Did the Salin recognize, uh, didn't he go over the head of, of, of that 
that that uh, that governor in Jamaica mm -hmm. uh, to talk directly to to the British Crown. Isn't that some point he wanted to? Well, like, why don't you go ask your bosses? You know, kind of. Uh, right. I mean, I I think Dissaline very much. Um, recognized that there's a you know like a chain of command um within empires and if he wasn't getting the response that he wanted from the governor of jamaica um he was quite willing to say okay i'll i'll uh, contact your bosses in london um and see what they have to say mm -hmm. and that's been kind of what was most i find most fascinating about your book too is because of a lot of that stuff that was going on this idea that you know Haiti was isolated also implied, I guess, in the mind of, of a lot of readers, me included, that, uh, uh, you know, like the, uh, the leaders didn't know what was going on. in the world. They were fully aware and engaged with what was going on in the world. Right. And, and, and the structures of these other governments and the metropoles and so on and so forth. Right. So I think that's probably one of the biggest thing you did. You sort of kind of blew this this book kind of blew that out of the water to say they were fully engaged with what was going on, you know, to, to the extent that uh, Salidin would say, hey, go talk to your boss, they might feel differently about that, you know? Right, and I think that this is um, part of a, a much broader attempt um, among people at the time, um, but in the, the centuries since then, to right, and this and this ties into the, the isolation thesis, right? If, if they're isolated, you can't recognize Haitian leaders as diplomats, right? Mm -hmm. um, you can't frame them as kind of in the same, or you can't talk about them in the same conversation as all of the other founding fathers, right? Mm -hmm. It's part of the Michel Rolf-Truyot's very famous, you know, silencing of the Haitian Revolution. It's also, um, it spills over into the uh, independence era. And if you're not recognizing Haitian heads of state as, um, you know, politicians as diplomats, um, then you're you're kind of contributing to this uh, the historic moment that that refused to recognize Haiti. How much did Dessalines' death have on that on on the the negotiating process for 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 Haiti as a whole? It, I think it it, it weirdly um, his death specifically does not kind of register as a big moment in international diplomacy. What is what is more important is the civil war that follows mm -hmm. um, for the reason that, you know, signing a treaty with, with one leader or another um, still kind of leaves it up in the air as to whether it's going to apply throughout the country. I, I in, in a surprising way, it kind of registers as a non-event in, and I th and I think it's surprising because you know a political assassination does not kind of reflect well uh, a country's you know ability to uh, follow law, rules of international law or mm. law of nations at the time. You know this is a, this is a narrative that has been repeated um, up to very recently that you know it kind of it re reflects poorly on the country. Um, mm -hmm. And so in in my research um, in the early 19th century, um, it surprisingly did not kind of occupy that much space in terms of uh, 
yeah, foreign decisions to to engage with Haiti or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I think I'll have to think more about that, um, okay. particularly in the in the biography. Thank you for the question. Um, no, no problem. Keep thinking. Yeah, what's that? <laughs> I'm gonna keep thinking about it. So thank you. So so one final question for you. Uh, what what is the did you have, were you ever able to quantify how much trade in terms of numbers, you know, import export that occurred uh, during the the ten years post independence that you covered? How much actual trade did go on? Did you ever put a number to it, or is that somewhere? I don't remember seeing it in the book. I have not, okay. um, and some of that has to do with um, the records that are available. Um, I think the closest to kind of, you know, import export numbers comes from, um, Rayford Logan, um, whose book, The Diplomatic Relations of Mm -hmm. the United States. Sorry, I'm looking at, I'm looking over at my shelf, um, to see the full title. Um, it's a UNC press book from the mid 20th century and it's amazing, but he did a lot of work in terms of quantifying, um, import and export, um, numbers, um, from Haiti. But for the early independence period, I really wasn't able um, to do that kind of calculation. I didn't um, totally try. Um, It's possible that from, uh, you know, newspaper accounts or or other types of shipping records uh, that somebody could do it. I hope somebody Mm -hmm. could do it. That'd be awesome. You said Rayford Logan, right? Yeah. What's the the diplomatic? Let me grab the whole book. Um, they cut off half the title on the, okay. It's the diplomatic relations of the United States with Haiti, 1776 to 1891. And it's, and it's, uh, it's like a kind of old school diplomatic history and it's amazing. Mm. Oh, that's awesome. You know, the the next evolution of this, uh, you know, (laughs) of this podcast is for it to go video. Remember, remember MTV Cribs back in the day? (laughs) I want to do like a, a scholarly crib where I just show me your bookshelf. I look at yours bookshelves, and then you all just talk about your bookshelves. I would be that would be great. <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, I hope we can do this again. I hope so too. The audience have been asking about that. Are like, where's the where's the biography on this, Aline? We keep hearing, you know, Christophe and and and. And Toussaint, that's fine. But what about Dessalines? What about Dessalines? What's that? And then the conspiracy theorists, you know, they're just, they're just filling up that space, you know? Well, so. and that's why, I mean, that's why I wanted to write it because, um, you know, there's been like, I don't know how many, 50 million biographies of Toussaint Louverture in like the last five years. And maybe <laughs> not, like 10 years, whatever. But there's been a whole bunch of them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think... Uh, Christophe is now, um, he gets two biographies, which is like not that many. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I, you know, I think, I think Dessaline deserves at least one biography and probably many more, you know, like, I hope this is, uh, I hope other people decide to also write biographies of Dessaline because I think there's room for, um, a lot more scholarship on him. Uh, so this is going to be the first, at least in the English-speaking world, right? Or period. This is the first. This could be the first biography on this alien. Period. Ye- 
I think other uh, some of like I think there's a couple that might have been translated into English. Mm. Um, but yes, although I'm I'm hoping to try to encourage uh, the press not to try to be like the first this, the first whatever, um, because I don't want to you know discount a lot of the biographies yeah. that have been written about him, just you know not in English. Um, but it is you know the it's foundational. Is it going to be foundational? I don't know about that. <laughs> you know, it's just between us, you know. I just won't get pumped, you know. I'll, I'll... You're still recording, I think, so. <laughs> no, I mean, would you put your disaligned boot in sort of the same foundational space as, say, the the making of Haiti? Um, There's going to be a lot of new materials for future scholars to mine, right? I'm hoping so. I'm Yeah, I'm hoping that... <laughs> Yes, to bring it back full circle, I'm hoping that people will say, don't miss the footnotes. But, okay. You know, that's <laughs> that's a hope. You know, that's what I'm kind of aspiring to um, because I think there's a lot of material that it would be really great if, you know, other people analyzed it and wrote about it and wrote new narratives. Okay. Awesome. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, thank you, Julia. Thank you for thank you. You know, for educating me and, well, and, and the audience. I really appreciate it. And thank you for all the work that you do and for your patience with me. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. <laughs>